Section 38 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 63 Conservative Reaction Installed in Office, Part 1. Mr. Disraeli was not long in forming a ministry. He reduced the number of the cabinet in the first instance to twelve. Lord Cairns became Lord Chancellor, Lord Derby was made Foreign Secretary, an appointment which gratified sober-minded men, Lord Salisbury was entrusted with the charge of the Indian Department. This, too, was an appointment which gave satisfaction outside the range of the Conservative Party as well as within it. During his former administration of the India Office, Lord Salisbury had shown great ability and self-command, and he had acquired a reputation for firmness of character and large and liberal views. He was now, and for some time after, looked upon as the most rising man and the most high-minded politician on the conservative side. The country was pleased to see that Mr. Disraeli made no account of the differences that formerly existed between Lord Salisbury and himself, of the dislike that Lord Salisbury had evidently felt toward him at one time, and of the manner in which he had broken away from the Conservative Ministry at the time of the Reform Bill of 1867. Lord Carnarvon became Colonial Secretary, Mr. Cross, a Lancashire lawyer, who had never been in office of any kind before, was lifted into the position of Home Secretary. Mr. Gathorne Hardy was made Secretary for War, and Mr. Ward Hunt, First Lord of the Admiralty. Sir Stafford Northcote, who had been trained in finance by Mr. Gladstone, accepted the office of Chancellor of the Exchequer. The Duke of Richmond, as Lord President of the Council, made a safe, inoffensive, and respectable leader of the government in the House of Lords. The Liberals seemed to have received a stunning blow. The whole party reeled under it, and did not appear capable for the moment of rallying against the shock. Nothing could be more disheartening than the appearance of the front opposition benches during the great part of the session. To accumulate the difficulties, Mr. Gladstone suddenly announced his intention of retiring from the position of leader of the Liberal Party. In a letter to Lord Granville, dated March 12, 1874, he explained that for a variety of reasons personal to myself, he could not contemplate any unlimited extension of active political service, and that it might be necessary to divest myself of all the responsibilities of leadership at no distant time. For the present, he held the rank of leader only in a sort of conditional way, and he had frankly announced to Lord Granville that he could not give more than an occasional attendance in the House of Commons during that session. This seemed the one step needed to complete the disorganization of the party. There were many complaints, not loud but deep, of the course taken by Mr. Gladstone. It was contrasted openly as well as secretly with the perseverance, the unwearying patience, which Mr. Disraeli had shown in keeping his place at the head of his party during long years of what must have seemed hopeless struggle. Mr. Gladstone pleaded his advancing years, but it was asked, are not the years of Mr. Disraeli still further advanced? Who brought us, some discontented liberals asked, 
into this difficulty who but the man who now deserts us in the face of the enemy the opposition were for a while apparently not only without a leader but even without a policy or a motive for existence for a while it seemed as if to adopt the correct and concise description given by mr claydon in his england under lord beaconsfield the opposition had nothing to oppose the ministry had succeeded to a handsome surplus of near six millions it would be hardly possible under such circumstances to bring in a budget which should be wholly unsatisfactory mr ward hunt contrived indeed to get up a momentary scare about the condition of the navy when introducing the navy estimates he talked in tones of ominous warning about his determination not to have a fleet on paper or to put up with phantom ships the words sent a wild thrill of alarm through the country the sudden impression prevailed that mr hunt had made a fearful discovery had found out that the country had really no navy that he would be compelled to set about constructing one out of hand the whole of the surplus at least people said would have to be given up to make a beginning nor did men forget to point to the cheerful possibility of some foreign enemy taking advantage of the opportunity to assail england's unprotected coasts mr ward hunt however when pressed for an explanation explained that he really meant nothing it appeared that he had only been expressing his disapproval on abstract grounds of the maintenance of inefficient navies and never meant to convey the idea that england's navy was not efficient the country breathed again the surplus seemed safe and the coasts the idea of germany or russia coming down upon defenceless england like achilles on the unarmed hector in troilus and cressida passed away two new measures belonging to the same order disturbed for a while what sir wilfrid lawson jocularly called the almost holy calm which prevailed in parliament now that the conservatives had it all their own way and the liberals were crushed one was the bill for the abolition of church patronage in scotland the other the public worship bill for england the church patronage bill which was introduced by the government is well described by mr clayton as a liberal measure which had become a reactionary scheme by being brought into the world a generation behind its time it took away the appointment of ministers in the church of scotland from lay patrons but only to give it to the male communicants of the parish kirk not to the whole body of the parishioners the patronage system was the cause of that great secession from the church of scotland under dr chalmers which has been described in an early chapter of this history such a measure as that now introduced by the government or at least a measure having such a general purpose would have prevented the secession in eighteen forty three but it was useless for any purpose of reconciliation in eighteen seventy four moreover the measure of eighteen seventy four by confining the power of appointment to the actual communicants of each church took away the national character of the church of scotland and converted it into a sectarian organization in a historical sense the passing of the measure can have little importance unless as it may have given an impulse to the question of disestablishment in scotland its introduction became of some present interest to the house of commons 
because it drew mr gladstone into debate for the first time since the opening nights of the session he opposed the bill but of course in vain mr disraeli complimented him on his reappearance and kindly expressed a hope that he would favour the house with his presence as often as possible indeed was quite friendly and patronising to his fallen rival the bill for the regulation of public worship was not a government measure it was introduced into the house of lords by the archbishop of canterbury and into the house of commons by mr russell gurney it was strongly disliked and publicly condemned by some members of the cabinet but after it had gone its way fairly towards success mr disraeli showed a disposition to adopt it and even to speak as if he had had the responsibility of it from the first once or twice it would almost seem as if he had forgotten that it was not a measure of his own proposing the bill illustrated a curious difficulty into which the church of england had been brought in consequence partly of its connection with the state we have already traced in these volumes the history of the oxford movement which was intended to quicken the state church with new life and freshness and which before long sent some of the greatest divines of the church into the ranks of the church of rome the influence of the movement made itself felt in other ways as well it set thoughts stirring everywhere within the church it appealed to much that was philosophical much that was artistic and aesthetic and at the same time to much that was sceptical one body of churchmen were anxious to maintain the unity of the christian church and would not admit that the church of england began to exist with the reformation they claimed apostolical succession for their bishops they declared that the clergymen of the church of england were priests in the true spiritual sense thus the tractarians as they were called for a time were thrown into direct antagonism with the evangelicals the latter maintained that the bible was the sole authority the former held that the new testament derived its authority from the church the tractarians therefore claimed a right to examine very freely into the meaning of doubtful passages in the scriptures and insisted that if the authority of the church were recognized as that of the heaven-appointed interpreter all difficulty about the reconciliation of the scriptural writings with the discoveries of modern science would necessarily disappear the tractarian party we call them by that name now merely as a means of distinguishing them from their opponents and not with the intention of suggesting that it properly describes them or applies at all to some of them became divided into two sections one section inclined toward what may almost be called free thought the other to the sentiments and the ceremonies of the roman catholic church the state was frequently called upon to interfere here the world saw the prosecution of some clergyman for having published an essay supposed to teach infidel doctrine there the ecclesiastical courts were engaged in trying to find out whether the church law had been broken by ritualistic practices in some protestant temple the taste for beauty and decoration which was growing up in english society everywhere had already made its influence felt in the english church clergymen and congregations loved to have their churches adorned like those of the catholics they delighted in the sweet and noble music the incense the painted windows the devotional effigies and symbols the impressive and gorgeous ritual 
the astonished evangelists saw with dismay that the church as they knew it seemed likely to be torn asunder on the one side was the philosophical clergyman writing his essay to show that a literal interpretation of certain parts of the bible was absurd on the other there was the high church priest setting up his altar swinging his censer making his genuflections and even establishing his confessional the evangelicals had their strongest supporters among the middle and lower middle classes the others found favour at once among the rich who went in for culture and among the very poor the law which was often invoked proved impotent to deal with the difficulty it could not punish the clergyman who contributed to the volume called essays and reviews it could not prevent the author of the first essay in that volume from being made a bishop it could not remove dr colenso from his colonial bishopric one clergyman was in eighteen seventy one deprived for heresy he forthwith started a religion of his own or at least found a place of worship after his own way of thinking and worshippers to fill it but it would seem as if he might as well have been allowed to remain in the ranks of the clergy of the church as many others whom the law failed to reach or might as well have refused to go out as others have done it was found impossible to put down ritualism by law in some places the ritualistic practices led to grave scandal and serious riots it happened occasionally that although the clergymen and the congregation liked the elaborate and ornate worship their neighbours all around disapproved of it in some instances the neighbours got into the way of crowding into the church and endeavouring to put down ritualism by noise and even by violence all this was becoming scandalous to the eyes of sober people many who were otherwise little disposed to approve of the dictatorship of the state in matters of religion and who did not see how any decision of a court could prove a religious dogma to be right or wrong were nevertheless inclined to demand that so long as the church of england was a state institution the authority of the state should be upheld they took very clear and simple ground they said the state upholds the english church on certain conditions and to preach certain doctrines no man is compelled to preach the doctrines if he does not feel equal in conscience to the task but if he cannot teach them he can go out of the state church we do not take it on us to condemn his opinions we do not want the law to punish him for holding them but we say the state employs him to teach one thing and he is teaching another we employ a man to teach german and we find he is teaching french we do not say that he is a wicked person because he teaches french we only say that we want to have german taught and that if he cannot do so he must give his place to someone who can on the other hand the ritualists say you tell us that we are bound by the state-made law we say we are only bound by the doctrines of the church but if we are to be bound by the law show us first that we have broken the law appeal to your courts of law do your best we say the decision has not yet gone against us it was not easy to answer this practical argument the law was not by any means so clear as some of the opponents of ritualism would have wished it moreover even in cases where a distinct condemnation was obtained from a court of law 
there was often no way of putting it into execution. A ritualistic clergyman was ordered to be suspended from his ministrations. He went on with his duties at his church just the same as ever. His congregation supported him, and the practices for which he had been condemned were carried on every Sunday without the slightest modification or interruption. In more than one case a clergyman was actually deposed by authority and his successor appointed. The congregation held fast by the delinquent and would not admit the new man. The offender remained at his post just as if nothing had happened. It was clear that if all this went on much longer, the establishment must come to an end. One party would renounce state control in order to get freedom, another would repudiate state control because it proved unable to maintain authority. The state of things might be likened to that which prevailed in America for some years before the Civil War. There were two irreconcilable parties. If one did not soon secede, the other must. To remedy all this disorder, the Archbishop of Canterbury brought in his bill for the better regulation of public worship. The object of the bill was to give offended parishioners a ready way of invoking the authority of the bishop, and to enable the bishop to prohibit by his own mandate any practices which he considered improper, or else to submit the question to the decision of a judge specially appointed to decide in such cases. The discussions were chiefly remarkable for the divisions of opinion that showed on both sides of the House. Lord Salisbury opposed the bill in the House of Lords. Mr. Hardy condemned it in the House of Commons. It was condemned as too weak. It was denounced as too strong. Mr. Gladstone came forward with all the energy of his best days to oppose it on the ground that it threatened to deprive the Church of all her spiritual freedom, merely to get a more easy way of dealing with the practices of a few eccentric men. Sir William Harcourt, who had been Solicitor General under Mr. Gladstone, rushed to the defense of the bill, attacked Mr. Gladstone vehemently, called upon Mr. Disraeli to prove himself the leader of the English people, and in impassioned sentences reminded him that he had put his hand to the plough and must not draw back. Mr. Gladstone dealt with his late subordinate in a few sentences of good-humoured contempt, in which he expressed his special surprise at the sudden and portentous display of erudition which Sir William Harcourt had poured out upon the house. Sir William Harcourt was even then a distinctly rising man. He was an effective and somewhat overbearing speaker, with a special aptitude for the kind of elementary argument and the knock-down personalities which the House of Commons can never fail to understand. The House liked to listen to him. He had a loud voice, and never gave his hearers the trouble of having to strain their ears or their attention to follow him. His arguments were never subtle enough to puzzle the simplest country gentleman for one moment. His quotations had no distracting novelty about them, but fell on the ear with a familiar and friendly sound. His jokes were unmistakable in their meaning. His whole style was good, strong, black and white. He could get up a case admirably. He astonished the House, and must probably even have astonished himself by the vast amount of ecclesiastical knowledge which, with only the preparation of a day or two, he was able to bring to bear upon the most abstruse or perplexed questions of church government. He had the advantage of being sure of everything. He poured out his eloquence and his learning on the most difficult ecclesiastical questions with the resolute assurance of one who had given a life to the study. 
perhaps we ought rather to say that he showed the resolute assurance which only belongs to one who has not given much of his life to the study of the subject probably when sir william harcourt had forgotten all that he had read up a little time before concerning church history and turned back to his remarkable speeches on the public worship bill he was as much amazed as arthur pendennis looking over one of his old reviews and wondering where on earth he contrived to get the erudition of which he had made such a display mr disraeli responded so far to sir william harcourt's stirring appeal as to make himself the patron of the bill and the leader of the movement in its favour mr disraeli saw that by far the greater body of english public opinion out of doors was against the ritualists and that for the moment public opinion accepted the whole controversy as a dispute for or against ritualism the course taken by the prime minister further enlivened the debates by bringing about a keen little passage of arms between him and lord salisbury whom mr disraeli described as a great master of jibes and flouts and jeers all this was as good as a play to the unconcerned public nothing could be more lively and entertaining people in general soon forgot all about the bill itself and even about the ritualists in the interest which was awakened by the splitting up of political parties the attacks of friend on friend and the cheerful sallies of cabinet minister against cabinet minister mr gladstone brought forward a series of resolutions in the form of amendments defining his objections to the measure but he forbore to press them to a division the bill was passed in both houses of parliament and obtained the royal assent almost at the end of the session nothing in particular has come of it thus far except lawsuits which it seems impossible to bring to any practical conclusion the new judge and the strengthening authority have tried their hands more than once against refractory clergymen and with no better effect than to prove that the refractory clergyman may still bid defiance to his superiors and the law ritualism was not put down doubtless it appealed to certain instincts in many hearts which the colder and less ornate ceremonial of the ordinary church of england service failed to satisfy the interference of the law seemed to have the effect common in such cases it made the followers of some ritualistic clergymen regard their leader not merely as an apostle but as a martyr in some instances it exalted commonplace men into the worship of congregations and the idol of emotional women in some instances it put good and pious men at the mercy of fussy and ignorant alarmists on the whole it promoted rather than suppressed ritualism End of section thirty eight